ahead and get started. <clears throat> there are handouts in the back. Hopefully everyone was able to get one. Today we are going over Romans 10, 14 through 21. If you want to go ahead and turn there or the passage is on your handout. And uh, of course the shorter catechism, but let's pray before we get started. Father, we are grateful that we can come together in this Sunday school hour and spend time with one another discussing and thinking about your word. I pray that this would be a fruitful time for us. Uh, thank you for bringing everyone here, and please send your spirit to be with us. Give us understanding. Help us to know what is good and true and to put away things that are wicked or untrue or unhelpful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism today is Catechism question number 76. I'll read the question and answer as usual and then make a brief comment on it and then we will, I will read the question and we will all answer together. <clears throat> the question is simple, what is the ninth commandment? The ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so we often simplify this or read it in essence as do not lie, which is a good summary of how to read it but the way that the commandment is given is a little different that has some subtleties or nuances to it. First of all is that it's oriented towards other people, first and foremost. So it is how we relate to others. Not only are we not to lie, we're not to lie about other people. We're not to use words to take advantage of other people. We're not to use them to bring down the value or the merit of other people. And it also highlights the value of the truth. And the, the, the truth especially the truth of the word, so to speak, is central, of course, in Scripture because we know that God, Christ, is the word. In our culture today, there are elements of this that are captured by our idea of freedom of speech, where we are free to speak the truth. And yet, it's not fully captured by that because we focus a lot of time on rights, freedoms. What are we able to do? Well, we have freedom of speech. I can say what I want. But God says, well, you can say the truth, but you cannot speak a lie against others. You cannot speak a lie, period. And uh, he's very gracious in the way the commandment's given, though, because he does not say you must speak the truth because he, he knows we can't possibly know the truth at all times. But at least don't lie, he says. At least don't tell something that you know is false at least don't speak wrongly against your neighbor. You may not have omniscient knowledge of what is true, though you strive after that, but you can not lie. And this is something I think nowadays in our culture, even presently, is being tested. We are tested on whether or not we will speak what is true versus what we will, whether or not we will speak what is popular, what is accepted, what will not get you canceled. Um, and so it's important, even when you are asked, <clears throat> even when people want to lie about themselves, that we not lie about what people are and who people are. And this truth that we are called to is ultimately found in God. There are reflections of God in all of creation, and it is important for us to know the truth about creation and know the truth even about our fellow man because um, 
in the parts of men that are not corrupted by sin, there are reflections of God. So the better we know his creation, the better we know him. We'll go back, let's read the, or I'll read the question, and then we'll read the answer together. Church, what is the ninth commandment? The ninth commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Moving on to our scripture, we're in Romans 10, 14 through 21. Can I get somebody to read that passage for me, please, on your sheet? Thank you. <clears throat> so first, a few sweeping comments about the passage, and even before that, we'll contextualize the passage. So you'll remember last week, Rob was teaching to us, and uh, does anyone remember the last verse of Rob's section, which was Romans 10, 1 through 13? Anyone? So that's leading into the, the passage today. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So very sweeping, yeah. Yeah, so that's a critical question. That's ex exactly the question that we have to ask. I mean, there are probably people on I-95 right now who are calling on the name of the Lord, but it's not for that reason. So... It's important for us to understand what that means, and Paul is quick to explain to us exactly what it means. There were plenty of Israelites, and this was a big issue in the Old Testament, on those who called on the name of the Lord, and yet they were condemned. And so what exactly is going on here, Paul? That's the question that we ought to be asking, exactly the question that we should want to know. So in sweeping terms, looking at the passage, it's a relatively short one compared to other ones, but one of the first things that we ought to notice is that Paul is quoting a lot of scripture, and a lot of it is coming from the Old Testament. We will be reading large chunks of those, so just get ready for that, because it's important for us to understand in context what he is quoting and how he is applying it to this. <clears throat> There's three points we're going to see. Those are the highest level bullet points. So the word is necessary for salvation, the word does not automate salvation, and God seeks out those whom he saves. So beginning with the first one, we'll see that in the first sort of 14, 15, verse 16 breaks in with a separate thought, but 14, 15, and 17, that first paragraph is this first idea, which is the word is necessary for salvation. Just like in Romans 8, 
with the golden chain of salvation, we call it. That's the, the passage, those whom he predestined, he also called, those whom he called, he also justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified. We see a sort of chain of salvation given to us here. And it's very different from that golden, that unbreakable chain of salvation, which tells us how, from God's perspective, he foreordains everything, he predestines, and then the action that the Spirit takes on you and what happens to that. And for those who are justified, he again gives us the, the future, which is you're glorified. This is a very different sort of chain. This chain is a practical chain. What's the process of salvation? How is it that people who are not saved come to be saved? And it's a very motivating chain because it's a call, in a sense, to responsibility for the church. So this, in uh, verse 14, how can they call if they have not believed, believe if they have not heard? How can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach unless they're sent? Is a critical connection for us to understand because it is the basis of many of our actions. There is no preacher unless we send them, right? Unless someone goes out and delivers this gospel that Paul has been speaking of, there is no preaching. And how can they hear without a preacher? And then how, he asks, can they believe if they've not heard? And this is where the belief in the existence of God comes about. But he says then, how can they call if they have not believed? So if the hearing is the belief in the existence of God, what are they believing then to call on God? What is this belief that Paul is speaking of? Believe him. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, very true. Anyone have anything to add to that? Believe that he's able to save. Yeah, good. Anyone else have any thoughts? Any additions? So it's belie- believing his promises, right? Believing what he says, believing that he is capable of doing what he says that he, what he will that he will do it. Believing in his character that it is true, that is good. And this is a key differentiation, right? So I might call on <clears throat> Tom Brady because I know that he exists. I might even get him on the phone, but he hasn't promised me anything. And if he answers the phone, he'll probably hang up as soon as I start asking him for money. And yet, God, it is not that I believe that he exists, but that I believe that he has made promises to me and that he has made promises that apply, that I can reach out, that I can call upon. And this is the the difference. This is the belief. This is the faith that Paul is talking about, not merely believing that God exists. That's already happened. They have to hear. But to really connect, rely on God, they must believe him. <clears throat> so in Romans 1, this is the discussion question 1. In Romans 1, Paul says that they knew God but did not honor him. But now he says people don't believe because they haven't heard. So what's the connection here? Because it feels like Paul is being inconsistent. In Romans 1, they knew God, but in Romans 10, they don't believe in him because they haven't heard. How can we 
put these two thoughts together. Okay, good, yep. Uh, Tim? Yeah, and that, well, that I, I do think to the degree that that applies, as you said it, to the Jews, to that, you know, the, if the traditions faded away, how much more does it apply to the Gentiles that Paul was sent for? So I think that's a great point. He, he yes, Travis. He said that has been opened up. Uh-huh.
that's right. Yeah. So covenant is broader than election. That's good. Someone over here have something. Okay, great. <clears throat> so after he delivers this, yeah, so it's important for us to understand Paul's line of thinking is the point of the question because he differentiate, differentiates here between, put simply, um, general revelation and special revelation, and we've expounded on what that means is that the people of the whole world know God. Paul calls them to responsibility. They, they know of him. They even, their conscience bears witness to the way that they do not keep the law as they should. And yet they, do, they cannot call on him. They don't know the promises that he's made. They have not been given um, the prophecies, the letters, the words from God directly to his covenant people. And even some within the covenant have rejected him, but those who have not heard at all <clears throat> need to be told, need to receive the invitation, so to speak. He goes on then to say, to conclude it with this first quotation, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And it's important, I think, for us to quote that from context. So if you want to listen or if you just want to turn there, either way, it's Isaiah 52, 1 through 7. And it's verse 7 is where he got this quote from, but we'll read it. And you'll notice, um, just to add a little bit more context to it, this is chapter 52. 53 is the servant song. This is the passage from Isaiah that we read at Christmas that everybody knows. We will read a little bit of that, I think, later. Um, but 52, 1 through 7, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. The rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. So here we see in this context, and of course it's not surprising because this is the Old Testament. This is where God was focused on covenant with Israel. Israel was his people. And we see a calling back of Israel to the covenant, a calling back to be the people of God. God recounts some of the history of Israel, and he says, um, you were sold for nothing. You were sold into slavery, made a slave to sin is the spiritual context of this. And then he says, you will be redeemed without money. So this fuller context is centered around in some ways this promise that you will be redeemed without money. And it is evident then that Paul is saying all of redemptive history is necessary for you to really grasp the promises of God, to believe the promises of God. All of this contextualizes it. Where did Israel start? Where did they come from? Who was at the beginning? Is Abraham the father of all? What was the promise made to him? And how does Christ fulfill that? In a word, it's 
it's not just any word, it's not just any story, it's, just, it's not just vague descriptions of God and who he is and what he might do, but it is the word who is Christ that Paul is speaking of here. <clears throat> and this brings up another question, which we'll try to connect to on the next point. Why does God give us special revelation in the form of story rather than, let's say, in our day, we would like maybe a systematic theology would be nice, maybe something nice and neat with categories for us. Why instead does he give a large part of redemptive history in the form of story? day-to-day life. Say it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Did it with real, yeah, he did it with real people. Good. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Bobby. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Good. I think it ties back into what Tim was also saying. Like, Harvey Cole verbalizes this like, very clearly in the Christian text, talking about like general versus special revelation. Like, there's enough in everyday life that you can see the beauty of God and God Himself through His creation and through interactions of Right? But also, same thing like what Bobby was saying. 
in the sense that you will be known personally. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. Exactly. You're talking in the beginning of Joshua. Yeah. All excellent points. Yeah. So <clears throat> stories create this connection. Like Josh said, we're created for story. I mean, you think of the, the toddler sitting on his father's lap or getting ready to go to bed wanting to hear a story. You think of uh, but high school buddies who have not been together in a while, all gathering around a table, gathering around a fire. What do you tell? You tell stories. You think of all of, well, the majority of our entertainment, movies, books, theater, video games, all of these things tell stories. And um, as I often do um, when I'm trying to prepare for these Sunday schools, I ask uh, Madison a similar question to try and feel out what she might say. And she said, uh, this is how we go about our day-to-day -day life. When we plan our life, we're telling a story about what we're gonna do that day. We tell ourselves stories about what we have done and what we will do. Everything we do is a, a story, and so God is giving more than just, it is not less than a set of doctrines, but it is more than a set of doctrines just for us to agree to, but it, it's a story that we participate in. It's a story that we are living in ourselves. And so, we see then through this, we've got the word, the gospel, the story, the promises given. A peop the people must hear to believe, and they must believe to call. But this word that is preached does not automate salvation. So it's revealed to us then in this redemptive history, in this story. So the next question, well, Paul, why isn't hearing the story enough? You didn't stop at hearing for salvation, but you had to go on to believing. The Israelites knew. They knew the story. They knew it well. And yet, they didn't know the one whom the story was about. And Christ is the centerpiece and the culmination of this. Hebrews reveals us to us first thing, essentially, that first we heard the word through the prophets, but now we know the Son, the Son who is the word, the Son about whom the prophets spoke. And this is what Paul is highlighting. You can't just hear and be done. But he says many hear, all the Israelites heard, and many beyond the Israelites have heard, but few actually obey. And it's such an issue, as I alluded to earlier, verse 14 through 17 is essentially centered around one major idea, except for verse 16, because Paul views it as, so important that he interjects in the middle of his thought to point this out. They have not all obeyed the gospel, he says. Um, in this verse, he contrasts how it should be with how it actually is, the ought with the is, so to speak. The word ought to be obeyed is what he's explaining. It ought to be very simple. It ought to be, we sin, they preach, you hear, you believe, you call. And yet, there's a gap between the hearing and the believing and the calling. The Old Testament tells us the story over and over and over again. And um, in fact, we were just talking about this, Pastor Sinners and several of us the other day, is that in this uh, 
the Bible reading plan that we're reading, we just finished Judges, at the end of it is one of the most horrific scenes in Scripture at the end of Judges, but the whole book is the cycle of hearing, calling, returning, so to speak, and then falling and essentially nearly being destroyed every time. And it takes the work of God to initiate salvation before the Israelites will call upon him. It's a cycle over and over and over again. And even more interestingly with what Paul does here is that it's not just a lack of belief. He actually equates this with disobedience. Read what he says. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, who has believed what he heard from us? So it's not even a passive, neutral unbelief, but this for Paul is a moral failure. And the quote here, interestingly, uh, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? This is from Isaiah 53.1, and we won't read it now, but this is leading into the servant song, that beautiful description of Christ, how he took on the role of a servant to save us. And then in verse 18, God goes on to say, even though you haven't obeyed, I've made myself known. He asks this question, have they not heard? And answers it immediately. The answer is yes, indeed they have. Here, and we will, will read this, he quotes Psalm 19, 1 through 4. Um, we'll just read the whole passage and you'll hear where he quotes it. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So here's another question for us. Psalm 19, a beautiful passage about how the earth and the sky declare the handiwork of God. Natural revelation, general revelation. Why does Paul quote this passage then to support his proof of special revelation? I think so. I think that's definitely an element of it. Any other thoughts? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you couldn't even get close, he's saying. He's already shown in Romans 1, natural revelation is enough to condemn. And he is indeed condemning them here. And I think, uh, as you all said, he's, he's the lesser to the greater, the argument. You couldn't, you couldn't get the basics. How are you going to get the meat? In other words, natural revelation is, has spread across the whole world. Everyone's seen it, and you've rejected it. And now, um, probably playing off of Acts in a way where the, the gospel is said to spread to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, he's saying, well, natural revelation spread across the whole world, and now, and now special revelation is doing the same. And in a sense, implicitly, a caution is coming that don't ignore this. In the gospels, Christ says that the Pharisees will be condemned by characters in the Old Testament because if they had seen this, they would believe, and yet you are not believing. Here, it's right in front of your eyes. So, Yeah, the your needs are revealed, and 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 the preacher we hope sweeps in with the good news for you. Natural revelation should leave us desperate for somebody to come and deliver that. That's a great point. Paul here, as I said, he characterizes it not as a mere innocent misunderstanding, but actually as a, a moral failure. So he's asking, was there, was the hearing of the Israelites was it true or was it merely superficial? And he quotes, once again, from the Old Testament, Moses' song in Deuteronomy. Um, in verse 19, the essence of what he's saying is, because Israel has made God jealous with not a God, that which is not a God, I will make it, God says, I will make Israel jealous with not a nation. This is the Gentiles, with not a people, in other words. And so <clears throat> it's a very um, clever, I guess you could say, way of making the point. But you see here, Israel is making God jealous sinfully. God is righteously jealous. But all that they are doing is sin, turning away from God. And yet God says, well, I'll, I'll do the same to you, but not in retribution, because number one, I want my, your jealousy to, to bring you back. The kindness of the Lord is meant to call forth repentance. And furthermore, not only will my act which incites jealousy in you hopefully call you to return to the Lord, but it will bring more with you. It will bring the Gentiles with you. So you see this stark contrast between the way the Israelites bring about jealousy, which is self-destructive, it is God dishonoring, and God brings about jealousy in his people in a way that not only calls them back, but actually calls more to salvation. Um, I put a quote on my notes, and I didn't write, I didn't attribute it to anyone. So please, for, hopefully they'll forgive me for quoting them without citing them. 
But Paul's theology of mission is intrinsically and profoundly bound up with the temporary hardening of Israel for the sake of the Gentiles. So this whole theology, like, like he said, of missions, rests on the idea that Israel is being made jealous and the Gentiles are now being called into the covenant. So how else, in addition to this song in Deuteronomy of Moses, how else does the Old Testament prefigure and predict the inclusion of the Gentiles in the Old Testament? Mm-hmm. right and as Mike said he was he was given he was offered the covenant was presented to him before he was circumcised yep Travis Yes, exactly. The last point we'll touch on, which um, thankfully is only one verse, because we only have five minutes, is verse 21. Nope, I'm lying. It's actually verse 20 and 21, capture this point. But God seeks out those whom he saves. <clears throat> In verse 21, though, he highlights, first, uh, he highlights Israel, saying, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So the, 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 the sentence sounds like he's highlighting the disobedience. It's a very negative uh, view of Israel, right? They're disobedient, they're contrary. It's negative, but it's true. But what he's saying is, I'm still holding out my hands to them. I have held out, I have been long-suffering for them. The covenant 
is still active for them. And in fact, as we mentioned earlier, the jealousy that I am inciting them to is not me turning away from them, but drawing them back, holding my hands out to them all the more. He's faithful to keep his covenant in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. And in verse 20, he says a similar thing. Another quote from Isaiah, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Well, this is Israel first and foremost, is it not? This started, well, I was going to say started with Abraham, but (laughs) in light of um, Tim's comments, we'll say it started even before Abraham. God, God was found, so to speak. He found himself to people who were not looking for them. He showed himself to people who did not ask for him. And that is applied in the Old Testament most obviously to Israel. And now Paul is saying, this is the Gentiles too. You were not looking for me. You did not ask for me. This is the, the famous sort of a Calvinistic picture of uh, you're not drowning and God throws you a life raft, but you're dead at the bottom of the sea and God calls you forth just like Lazarus was called forth. Lazarus, as uh, David preached just, was it last week? Lazarus was last week, right? Um, Lazarus was not in his grave sending mail out asking to be brought back to life. He was not asking to be brought back. He was not looking for Christ. Christ found him and brought him back. And so this is how Paul ends this passage. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's good, Rob. Thank you. Uh huh. There you go. Rob's, Rob said the first game of hide and seek was in Genesis, for those who didn't hear that. So look at God's grace. And Paul has highlighted this earlier in Romans. He says most people won't even die for a, a good man, most people won't even die for a righteous man. But look at Christ who died for you while you were still in your sin, who called out to you when you were unable to do anything about it. He has called us to the gospel, and it's free. He says, you will be redeemed without price. Come and eat and drink without price. This is the gospel that Christ has called us to. Any last thoughts? All right, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this word. We are thankful for those who were sent, who preached to us. We are thankful for the ears that you gave us to hear and the faith that you gave us that we might believe and the mouth that we might call upon you. We pray that you would sustain us in that. Save us, keep us from faith to faith. And as we go into our time of worship, please send your spirit to be with us. Cause our hearts to be genuine in our worship. Free us from the distractions of the world and cause us on this day of rest to be totally and wholly given to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Oh, thank you for your seven verses. So I had, I had, to, I had to make other people talk for me. Did you? Are you good? Do you have you seen the story of
serendipities bringing the good news. Mm-mm. So in ancient times, in this, in this battle, bringing bad news, he knew that when he ushered that bad news in, he would also die. So mm. his feet would just fly apart. Mm. So you think of that as, as preachers delight to share the gospel, or any of us delight to share the gospel. That's our, that's our, our it gives us our, our character. Yeah. It's just a kind of a personification of I get to share the gospel. Mm-hmm. I get to share this. Yeah. Of, oh, the oh, good news. Me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I thought that's a lot of people are along. So you just reminded me too of an analogy. I, I'm always I start working on these like a month ahead oh, of time, and I just like think about it, you know, while I'm it right. stuff pops into my head, and I forgot to. But you know, you've heard story. I would have to look up a specific story, but you've heard stories, Civil War. Uh, Revolutionary right. War or whatever, where there are like these little battalions that are stranded right. and they don't know they're still fighting. They don't know the war is over. Right. And I thought of that was a really good analogy yeah. for like you're like these people out here fighting against the flesh. I mean, they know their consciences bear witness against it, right? right? So they're out here fighting one way or another. It's kind of an optimistic view uh, of humanity, yeah. but they're yeah. out here fighting, and and then the preacher comes along. War's over, man. Right. You're done. Right. Yeah. We're done. Yeah, we finished. Uh-huh. The war's won. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Thanks, man. Thank you. Good stuff. Expecting high things from you this morning. Well, yeah, you've come from looking here. I've been at the, you've, you've, come, you've been near glory. Yeah. Well, so listen, you, I, I almost called you. Steve Lawson gave a talk on scripture. And the whole time I'm thinking of these guys at Augusta. And well, we need to speak of Shots fired, and then, and then somebody asked him a question. Okay. Just as a word of encouragement to you to stand for. 
I'm anxious to hear back from you. Sure. Yeah.